we continue our study in Romans chapter 8. And you'll find that on pages 944 and 45 in your pew Bible. We'll be reading verses 28 through 34. Just reading 28 and through 30 for context because we're going to be focusing on verses 31 through 34. We've been going slowly because there are just so many rich things in this passage. But beginning with verse 28. <clears throat> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our hearts to know your word, to believe your word, to live out your word so that we can be uh, living examples of it, uh, that it will flesh itself out in our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our motives, our words, our actions. Oh Lord, make your word live in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, kiddos, we've got four words to remember, and two of them are names, so this is a little harder, but first one's easy, 72,000 angels. All right, 72,000 angels. Then Anna Scott, some of you may recognize that name. Then King's Keys, we'll get back to that from last week. And then another name at the end, Rachel Lane. Probably fewer of you would know that name. <clears throat> so 72,000 angels, Anna Scott, King's Keys, Rachel Lane. This first phrase in Romans 8, God is for us, is really an umbrella over this whole passage. Everything is a fleshing out of the meaning of that or why that is true that God is for us. He's just proving it phrase by phrase by phrase so that we don't doubt that God is for us. But like one commentator said, this is really a summary of the whole gospel. God is for us. And if you turn that outward, that little parenthesis here, it's the message we give to the world. The world, God is for sinners. 
Like 2 Corinthians 5, where it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Paul says he's committed to us this ministry of reconciliation so that we say to you, be reconciled to God. You get this message. God's already been here. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Come and be reconciled. God is for sinners. Come. Or the most famous John three sixteen. God so loved the world, which means he loved the world in such a way or he loved the world in this way that he gave his son. So that whoever believed in him would not perish. But then verse 17, for he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why did he send him? Because he's for sinners. This is for you, sinner. Come, be saved, be reconciled. Come to this God. He is for you in the sense that he is offering you new life in his son. But of course, the phrase is specifically for his people who've been chosen and drawn to him. And of course, when it says who can be against us, there are many things that are against us that want to destroy us. And sometimes some days, some weeks, it seems like everything is against us. But in the midst of all of this upheavals and tragedies, in the end, nothing can be really against us. The all things that is described in verse 32 includes, if you read fur, if we read further, all the sufferings that are listed in verses 35 through 39. All things, even these terrible sufferings that Christians will go through. All things come from the same love that gave his son. Nothing can ultimately be against us. They're never because God doesn't love us. They're always a part of his love. They're always a part of his purpose. They don't happen because he neglects us or abandons us. And they're never meant to do a spiritual harm, but only spiritual good, no matter how difficult or tragic. They don't mean that he's distant, uncaring. They don't mean he's helpless. They don't hinder him. Rather, they're instruments for his good. They don't, they're not obstacles. They're means to his accomplishment. They're helpless to do us any true evil, even though they put us to death. His hand of love is on us. His hand of love is on all things. Therefore, everything is orchestrated for our good. Nothing can be ultimately against us. All things under the sovereign God have to be for us. They have to be. They, inanimate, animate, can't help it because God is sovereign and he will bless his people because God is for us. Now, he goes on to enlarge on what this means and how it is the case. And he begins with, he who did not spare his own son, verse 32. Now, if a verse could be worn out, I would have worn this verse out. It would be faded, frayed around the edges, stains all over it. Because this is such an incredible verse to me. Actually, it gets brighter and more precious in the use. Interesting, this phrase, he gave him over or delivered him over, delivered him up for us. 
is in chapter one, where three times as God is describing his judgment, he describes how he, Paul describes how God delivers us over to judgment and further sin as human beings. When we turned away from him three times, he delivered us over to judgment and further sin. He delivered us over to judgment and further sin. And then at the end of that chapter, chapter one of this book, Romans, he describes the final result of God giving us over. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, who is he describing here? Gentiles, specifically. Could be describing Jews too, but he's describing us. This is you and me. Look up your name. Here's all this listed, right? It's for them he did not spare his own son. You see? It's for them he did not spare his own son. You'd think that God, in considering whether he would deliver up his son to judgment, and you say, now these are the people who you're going to deliver him up for, and all of these things come before him, you think he'd say, yeah, no, no, not, not, not for these people, not for these people. But as Paul earlier has said, God shows his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Deacon's meeting, uh, Lee Norman made the case uh, that the more difficult thing, like you can think of yourself maybe sacrificing yourself, but it's really hard to think of sacrificing your own son for somebody and sacrificing your own son for somebody who's evil. Yet that's what God did. The son of his eternal love, an infinite love we cannot imagine. He delivered him up for us all, us kind of people. And Jesus didn't, it wasn't foisted on Jesus. He chose to do it. As he said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. He wasn't some helpless pawn in this, not willing to do it. He even, uh, they wanted to kill him one time before the, it was the right time. They took him to the high point of a brow and he just walked through them. And you can imagine these people after he walked through them and they're standing there saying, well, why didn't you stop him? I don't know. Why didn't you stop him? Right? Nobody could stop it. It wasn't his time to be sacrificed yet. And when they came to sacrifice him, when they came to uh, arrest him, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. He said, I am he. And all the soldiers fell on their back as if to say, I'm running this show. And when one of the disciples pulls out a sword to try to defend him, he says, don't you know I could call 72,000 angels and smoke this place? <laughs> I mean, two angels burned two cities, 72,000 
72,000 cities. You do the math, right? Power's not the problem. I could stop this right now. No one takes my life from me. He didn't think he was too important. He didn't think he was too precious, even as God. This is how great my honor is, how strong I am. I lay down my life. That's the way God handles power. He delivered him up for us all. And then you think, okay, if he was going to hold back something, he would have held back Christ. I'll give you anything in the world. I'll give you worlds. I'll give you universes. Can't give my son. But if he does give his son, Paul's argument, his logic, is he going to withhold anything from you? No, no. All good, every hour, every day is going to flow to you to make you like Christ. Because that's the whole point. He, he just spoke about it or wrote about it in verse 29 to conform us to the image of his son. So all things are moving us toward that to the final conformity to his glory in the last day. Everything is working toward that. Everything is working to make us like Jesus. As Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. So we are learning to be like God who gave himself away so beautifully. Blessed are the wives whose husbands are seeking to love them in that way. Blessed are the husbands whose wives are loving them that way. Blessed are the children whose parents are seeking to live out this humility. Blessed is the church that is counting one another, as we read, as more important than yourself and humbly serving one another as Christ has served us. That's what's happening and nothing will stop it because he gave his son. He's going to give all good to you defined in this passage as constant comfort. Excuse me, conformity to Jesus Christ. Uh, Cut that part from the tape, please. Uh, Just kidding. And the importance of this, too, is that it's the humble that inherit the earth. Nobody else. It's those that are conformed to Jesus who become like Jesus who are humble like Jesus, who give themselves away like Jesus, those are the ones who receive the kingdom because they're like God. I'm going to take God chose and God justified together because they're kind of bound up in in this passage. I'm I'm concerned because the minute hand is not moving here. (laughs) And I thought it was 20 till and it's still 20 till, but it's not. Don't worry. I've got a safety valve right here. Okay. Everybody's like sweat dropping down. (laughs) Move that clock. Okay. Notice he says then 
in verse uh, 33. Who shall bring any charge? Notice, who shall bring one charge? The picture is judgment day. The picture is the courtroom of God. The picture is, is there anything that's going to stand in the way of our being justified and forgiven and received into heaven before God? Which affects now, because whatever happens then, this is ours now. This is our relationship now as we stand before God. But this final day courtroom being present to us, who's going to bring even one charge? The fact that they're called God's elect gives you a little hint there, right? Because God loved them before time. He chose them. He wanted them. He drew them to himself. They belong to him. You can imagine just from that standpoint, anybody trying to bring a charge against his own that he's purchased with his own blood, drawn to himself, holding them forever. The sense almost is, don't you dare think to bring a charge against one of my own. But it says, it's God who justifies. So as to go further, God is the one who says, not guilty, trial's over, verdict is given, there's no appeal, it's done forever, court is closed, court is over. There's nothing else. There's not another voice. It's the judge, the father, declaring not guilty. There's no opposing voice whatsoever. And I think the reason justified is the term used in the golden chain in verse 30, because you might wonder, what, where's the word sanctified? But uh, I think he's emphasizing in all of this that we enter into the favor of God. When we are called to God, we come into his favor. We are justified. That's what that means. We live in the favor of God. We're no longer under judgment and wrath. There's no condemnation. There's ever any, any condemnation. It's favor and only favor. Of course, all things work together for good because you're in his favor, right? You're justified. He'll let nothing harm you because you are under his favor. Everything must work for your spiritual good. You're under his favor. You're justified. And that's why he brings you with certainty to be glorified. Of course, he's, you're under his favor, brothers and sisters. He will give all things to you. You will inherit the earth. You're a co-heir with Christ himself because you're under his favor, not his judgment. You're under his favor, not his wrath. You're under his favor, not condemnation. Favor, not rejection. Not even the slightest dimming or fading of his fierce love for you. You're under his favor. Yes, God is for us. He justifies us. He declares us not guilty. No one can bring a charge. And then verse 34, who is to condemn? Now, if one can not bring any one charge, it's not likely that you're going to bring condemnation. But he's arguing from the greater to the smaller in a sense. If one charge can't be brought, then surely 
who is to condemn. But then he lists out why you cannot be condemned. Because one might wonder, well, how can he forgive me a sinner? How can he still be just and forgive me a sinner? How can he just sweep away all that I've done and act like it never happened? But this verse explains how. That he died. He died in our place. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. They weren't his iniquities. They were ours. They weren't his transgressions. They were ours. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. He put that iniquity on us. First Peter 2.24 puts it very clearly. I think we've referred to this before. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's why he was on the cross. He was bearing our sins. He bore them in his body on the cross. How specific can you get? How much more specific? And Peter says, by his wounds, you were healed. Also taken from Isaiah 53. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By these wounds, you've been healed because he bore away your punishment. He was raised. This is important because it shows that he completely finished paying for our sins by being freed from death. I have a younger brother named Mark. Suppose I, here in Hattiesburg, get arrested for armed robbery. Great future for your pastor. Um, But my brother drives from Atlanta, shows up in court. Let's say it could happen this way. And he stands before the judge And he says, I will take my big brother's punishment. You agree to this. You realize it's five years in prison. Yes, I will take the five years. He goes to prison for five years. End of that time, he walks out of prison. What are the chances that I will be put in prison? Nil, right? No, he, he served the whole time. He walked out. It's done. It's finished. And that's the glory of the resurrection. It's the way God is declaring to us. It's finished. It's over. Death cannot hold him. Punishment is done. For all who trust in Christ, your sins are forever forgiven. If you hide yourself in him who has paid for sins and been released because all sin has been accomplished. And then in honor of him who died for us, he was at the right, raised to the right hand of God to bring praise and glory to the one who would sacrifice himself and so show forth the love that God has for sinners. This is what God wants to do for us so that we know our punishment will never fall on us. He wants you to believe that and exult in that and be free in that. And then on top of all this, that he intercedes for us. Hebrews says he ever lives to intercede. That's his purpose, writer of Hebrews would say. That's what he's living for. We're always on his heart. He's always interceding. This is his central work. He never tires. And he is presenting himself before the Father as the reason for the Father to always bless us. 
He's our defense before the Father. There's no prosecuting attorney. The only voice in heaven is his precious blood presented. And that wins constantly God's infinite favor upon us because we are identified with Christ who is interceding for us. In the movie uh, Notting Hill, uh, William Thacker, a little bookshop owner. I don't approve of everything in Notting Hill. Okay. But um, at the end, toward the end of the movie, he finds out that this famous actress is there in England, in London, filming uh, a William James movie. And so he shows up on set and the guard stops him. He says, I'm, I'm friends with Anna Scott and I, I want to talk to her. And he says in his English accent, you know, sorry, I can't, can't do that. Can't, can't let you in. No, but I, I know her. We're friends. Of course, everybody would say, no, no, can't let you in. So Anna's walking, Julie Roberts, Hugh Grant, and she sees him. And when she sees him, she starts toward him. And then the guard backs away because they're oh, you do know her. She sees you. She invites him in. And why Jesus would do this, I don't know. But he gladly welcomes me into the presence of the Father with him. To stand with him, to receive all the blessings he receives, to receive the inheritance that he receives. Everything he won, he wants me to have it. He wants you to have it. He intercedes for us. And finally... This glory thing that we left out last week. Glory means several things. It means ownership. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We already touched on that. Abraham was told that he would be heir of the world, and we are children of Abraham. We're now heirs of the world. And in a different Julia Roberts movie, Aaron Brockovich. Uh, at a certain point, she gets an envelope at her house. She's holding her baby. She gets an envelope at her house and she wonders what's in there. She pulls out a check for $5,000, which is going to help her do her lawyer thing in a great way. And then she reaches in and there are keys. She sees the keys and she looks on the street and there's a brand new car for her dilapidated, fallen down car. We won't have to drive anymore. But keys represent what? You're the, these are, this is your car. All she saw was the keys, saw the car. She got the connection. I own this car. I can drive this car. This is my car. And in that final day, God gives you the keys to the new creation. Puts them in your hand. Says this new creation, this world that's been remade, it's yours. Keys, the king's keys He owns it, but he shares it, generously gives it to all of his people. So it means ownership, but it means kingship as well. That's pretty obvious. Ownership means kingship. Revelation 5, you've made them, us, a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Christ was crowned with glory and honor in his resurrection and he was 
He was given rulership over the world where Adam lost that rulership. And this reign will mean a full use of our gifts, which are renewed in some kind of perfection, which we can't imagine. And we'll work with perfect collaboration with one another in the new creation. We'll have a perfect delight in one another's gifts in a way we can't imagine. And in a glorious concert, we will enjoy and develop the new creation, which will flourish in a way we could not even envision. And we'll be clothed and filled with the Holy Spirit and a flawless, unqualified fellowship with the Father and the Son. And they will manifest their presence to us in a way we can't conceive. We will have this kingship. We will have this inheritance. You may, some of you have read John Grisham in the book, The Testament, uh, this rich man, I don't know if it's Troy Phelan or Phelan, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but very rich man, billionaire. He had three wives, two children from each wife. Each child, when they were 21 years old, got five million bucks. So here it is to the end of his life. He's about to die and they've all squandered their wealth and they're all hungrily gathering around like vultures to see what else they can get off their father and grandfather. And he tells them the will, you know, the fake will that you're all a part of the will. They leave. And then he calls up his attorney and said, here's the real will. This is the real will. And he left all $11 billion to an illegitimate daughter who had gone to medical school, who had gone to seminary. Her name is Rachel Lane, and she's now a missionary in South America. It's a great illustration. Vultures, the power hungry, the prideful, they don't receive the inheritance. It's the humble that receive the inheritance from God. Jesus models both humility, and now he models the future kings and queens that we will be in him. What a glorious savior. Let us pray. Lord, bless us, equip us, make us, Lord, to know who you are and what you've done for us and to rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.